1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Say hello to the goodbye girl. Make it fast. Hi, I, I, I think there's been some kind of mistake. I sublet this apartment from this friend of mine. Technically, that apartment belongs to me. Now, do I come up there now? We discuss this amicably? Or do I storm the place in the morning? Five minutes. The only practical solution is that we share the apartment. I'll bet. You win. Get your bags. You get the small bedroom. We're in trouble, right? Say hello to Richard Dreyfus. My kingdom for the horse! Say hello to Marsha Mason. An actor. Say hello to Quinn Cummings. I think he's kind of cute. He reminds me of a dog that nobody wants. Say hello to Neil Simon's tender, funny love story. If you don't let go of me, I am going to punch your other eye out! More than neighbors. You know it's five to six. Less than lovers. Mismatched roommates living alone together. Oh, you ever do that again? Your lips may say no, no, but there's yes, yes in your eyes. Richard Dreyfus and Marsha Mason in Neil Simon's first new comedy since Murder by Death. Say hello to the goodbye girl. Welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spatero, and I am here with my very able co-host, Mr. Sean Whalen. I am always happy to be here. It's good to be recording with you, my friend. And I am always happy that you're there, or here, or wherever it is you are, <laughs> as long as we get to talk. Uh, so today it's just the two of us, and we are going a little bit off the beaten path, I guess, uh, but as, as Sean and I were just talking about, uh, that is kind of the nature of the show. I don't want this to be a show where we just focus on, you know, one genre of movie and roll with that all the time. Because I think as a movie fan, uh, we need to, to broaden our horizons and see movies that we wouldn't see or talk about movies that we wouldn't talk about. And what we're talking about today is the Neil Simon written Herbert Ross directed uh, 1977 film, The Goodbye Girl. Uh, now, I have a long history with this movie because 
when this was in the theater, I saw it at the Nostrand Theater in Brooklyn, and the Nostrand Theater was, you know, a small one-movie theater uh, in 1977. I'm sure it eventually broke up into <laughs> several closed down altogether. But anyway, I had friends who were like one or two years older than me who were working at Usher's as ushers at the movie theater at that time. So anytime I wanted to, I just walked over and they would just let me in and I didn't have to pay to see a movie. So I probably saw this in that theater maybe three or four times before its uh, run ran out. And I'm not sure I saw it again until a couple of weeks ago. I was sitting down and I got up early and I was flipping through the channels and it was coming on and I started to watch it. And Sean and I started texting and I was like, have you ever seen this? And he was like, no. But as is always the case, uh, the response was, I haven't seen it, but I'm willing to try. So Sean followed up by watching it. And here we are to talk about it today. This is a rom-com. And a lot of people just, you know, don't have interest in those. And I'll tell you what I don't have interest in. I don't have interest in let's get everybody looking like a supermodel and a male model and let's put them together and make them fall in love. Uh, I think one of the first appeals of this movie to me is Richard Dreyfus and Marsha Mason. They're, I mean, they're good enough looking people. It's not like they're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're not ogres or anything, but they're regular looking people. They're people who look like somebody you'd meet on the street on an average day and uh, and they seem like regular people, even though they have jobs that are not so regular in the movie. And I think it makes them very, very relatable. So the combination of that and what turned out to be, I think, tremendous chemistry between the two actors, combined with uh, what is probably one of the cutest little 10-year-old actresses you could ever get, uh, just made for a really enjoyable movie as far as I'm concerned. Now, that is, again, having seen this from when I was a teenager uh, or, you know, not even an old teenager, just a teenager. Uh, and, uh, you know, from there. Now, just by the way, Quinn Cummings, who is such an adorable 10 year old, is now 56, by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just popped up open her Wikipedia page. So she's only she's only five years younger than me. Uh <laughs> But anyway, uh, so you saw this for the first time, and let's just start there. What was your impression? I really liked it. Um, you, when you kick off, it's so it's from 77. So I was six at the time, which my family history, you know, during that time was a lot of drive-ins, you know, to going to see movies. It was just kind of a popular way to see movies at that time. This is one I'm surprised I didn't see, um, just because – you know, this would be first or second feature on a, a drive-in run, and we just never saw this movie. Um, my family may have, I didn't, um, but it was really real. There's some, so there's some portions of it that are clearly from '77. There's some sensibilities that are clearly from '77. But overall, when you approach a film like this, it's the likability of the characters. And that's really the key of this one. It's very intimate, you know. So yes, there are other cast in there, but the main cast you really are focusing on is Richard Dreyfus, Marsha Mason, Quinn Cummings. I mean, those are the three that are central. Anybody else that's in their interactive group is really more to flesh out who they are as people versus them being main players in this one. And the intimacy is really key on this because if you don't like them, you're done with this film. And they are immensely likable. They start off, they're very flawed, but it's not the kind of flawed where like you're beating them down, like these are miserable wrecks and like they're so depressing. They're rounded. 
there's good things and there's things going wrong and they're trying to get this life balance in place. And every time something seems to be productive for them, something goes wrong. <laughs> uh, and But they keep going at it. They meet each other in such an unlikely way. And it's there's a chemistry. And I just really found myself drawn to it, enjoying them. When the movie ended, I wanted like to know more. Like, where do they go from here? What's their life like? What is, you know... Um, I'm not saying it's a film that like needs to have a sequel. It was more of the I was so immersed in what I was watching. It felt to me like some of your best sitcoms that have multiple seasons where I was invested in this this family and I wanted to see more of where they would go in the future. That's I think what makes a good sitcom, right? It's you've got to care about the characters and want to see them week over week and their misadventures because you know that that's their whole life's going to be kind of like what you saw in the movie. <laughs> well, that's 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 a real interesting thought that you had because when I was reading about this and I don't think it's on the Wikipedia page because I have that open now and I'm just looking for it. Uh, I saw it somewhere. I, I was reading up on it a little bit and they apparently made three attempts at pilot episodes for this to be a series. Uh, never with obviously the original stars in it. Uh, but one of two of the three had Cameron Valentine as the lead female. Uh, and I don't recall the third one. I think I didn't recognize the woman's name and I don't recall who the men were uh, who played the, the Dreyfus role. Uh, but it's interesting that they, they really tried to make this into a sitcom because it does feel, I, I agree with you totally, it does have that feel like, well, their life is still going to be interesting even after they've settled in together. Uh, and and it, there's there's room for comedy in there. You know, I, I, Neil Simon wrote this and, and you could almost see kind of a male-female odd couple kind of dynamic developing there, uh, and especially with, with you know, the, the daughter and, and the situation there. One of the one of the three pilot episodes uh, was directed by James Burroughs, who is, you know, famous for, you know, kickstarting sitcoms uh, and and having them, you know, be successful, and then having other people take over and kind of run with the groundwork that he laid. So I'm I'm a little surprised that this did not, you know, catch on at least for a season. Oh, here it is. I did see uh, there were three failed attempts to turn the Goodbye Girl into a half an hour television sitcom. Uh, according to Lee Goldberg's books, book Unsold Television Pilots. That might be a book I need to pick up because that, that could be interesting. The first pilot aired on NBC in May 1982 and was titled Goodbye Doesn't Mean Forever, starred Karen Valentine. Oh, and Michael Lembeck. Uh, if you don't know Michael Lembeck, he was on One Day at a Time. He eventually married the, uh, uh, what's her name? I can't even think of uh, the, the older daughter. Uh, and his father, Harvey Lembeck, was a pretty famous actor. Uh, the biggest thing I know him from is Stalag 17. He was one of the uh, the people in, in the uh, concentration camp. Uh, so it was directed by James Burroughs with a script from Alan Katz. The second unaired pilot was produced a year later, starring Joe Beth Williams, directed by Charlotte Brown from a, from a script. And the third, which never aired, also starred Valentine, and they don't say who the male lead was on that. Goodbye Girl was developed into a 1993 Broadway musical starring Martin Short and Bernadette Peters. Uh, and, it, and then there was a 2004 remake, remake with Jeff Daniels and Patricia Heaton, 
uh, that kept the screenplay from the original version. I have never even heard about that. I mean, when it says a remake, I assume they mean a film. Uh, so I'm going to have to just kind of check that out if I can. But anyway, uh, stories, and, and this is all from Wikipedia. I, you know, I, I'm never going to pretend like I do all this great research. I, I you know, I, I, I usually base my, I want to base my reviews on my own thoughts, but I look, I look to Wikipedia usually just to get a little background uh, on stuff. And this was originally uh, based on a screenplay called Bogart Slept Here, uh, which is based on Dustin Hoffman after he became a star. It was supposed to star Robert De Niro and Marsha Mason. Uh, and the idea was that she was an ex-dancer married to a promising but struggling off-Broadway actor who gets discovered in a small play and whisked out to Hollywood where he reluctantly moves with his family. And then apparently they have like marital problems because of it. So a very, very different movie. Uh, and then they said they started to film it with Mike Nichols as the director. And before we started recording, we were talking about Mike Nichols. And just by way of teaser, uh, I've asked Sean to do a, a Mike Nichols movie, which is not really on his stellar movie list that we're going to be doing probably in the not too distant future. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Mike Nichols as time goes on. Anyway, as they started to record to film it, they came to the conclusion that De Niro uh, wasn't quite right for the role. They said something to the effect that his comedy is based more on his reactions, his facial expressions, things like this. And this is more of a dialogue heavy movie and his dialogue reading wasn't quite as up to the comedy timing that they were looking for or whatever. So they stopped filming it and they cast uh, Richard Dreyfus in the role because they felt like they had, he had a lot of chemistry and Mike Nichols apparently did not like what they were doing and he left it. So then uh, Neil Simon took the screenplay and put a, an extensive rewrite on it and came up with the script that they worked with. So, I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, I think, when you said that this is based upon the likability of the characters, which I think in most romantic comedies that is the case. Uh, interestingly, the reviews that came out after this, specifically Siskel and Ebert, and again, this is from Wikipedia, uh, they were not enamored with Marsha Mason's performance. They felt that she was actually not likable. And I have to disagree even you know with with that take on it because i think she was likable i think she's a person who kind of had the world collapse around her over and over and over again and you know had an edge to her and that edge is what actually keeps you know the two characters kind of at arm's length for i don't know two-thirds of the movie before they actually start to really fall in love with each other uh and I and I think that's that's where the you know where a lot of the enjoyment is is seeing him try and react to that edge and try and him trying to you know there's there's scenes where he clearly is like bending over backwards to try and accommodate her uh, and she she just keeps you know keeps pushing the envelope a little bit further uh, until she realizes she can't which is eventually why you know they they end up sharing the apartment. Uh, the one thing I love about it is the edge and the power struggle, right? So this is a this is a lot about power struggle. So you've got these two people that are life is constantly taking power away from them. 
Um, they look like they've made it, and now all of a sudden something goes wrong, or what they thought it was going to be is not the thing that it was, so they're like pushing back against life. Relationships aren't going well for either of them, so it's again that power struggle. Um, and with this, even with the apartment thing, right? So you know, he shows up on the scene innocently, has sublet this apartment. Figures like, okay, I got like three months, you know, I'm good to go, I'm solid. She, in the meantime, boyfriend's left. And left, basically let out their apartment, the place where she's going to live. He left a goodbye note, never even told her that, hey, by the way, you don't have a place to live tomorrow. So this guy Mm. showed up on the doorstep. And I love what you're saying, because I think you're right. He's bending over backwards when a lot of people wouldn't have. But even so, when, when the living arrangements are being set, she starts off very early saying, I'm a mom. I got a daughter. Here's the ground rules. And he's sort of like, wait a minute here. I paid for this place. You haven't. You're lucky I'm letting you live here. And I love the whole like interplay. Like my favorite scene in, in that opening bit was like, are you decent? He's like, I am. <laughs> and she walks in the door and he's sitting there naked with the guitar. And he's like, I also happen to be naked. Again, it's been that was all. Yes, it was a comedy bit. But it was also, again, him saying power struggle. This is my abode right now. I told you before, this is the way things are going to be. If you're walking in on me right now, you don't like the fact that I'm playing music this late at night. These are the ground rules. And both of them are poking at each other very early on in the film. So that's where it softened my feelings about her because I'm like, he's poking her just as much as she's poking at him on this one. And that balance is something where I'm with you. I liked her because of the fact that it was the two of them doing it. I think if he had been wimpier, in all of that scenario, there's a difference between he's fallen for the daughter and he's starting to soften saying, okay, this kid's great. There's got to be something to her because this kid's great. She's very protective of this. So he's kind of like softening to the daughter and saying like, you know, almost being like a, I don't know, like a, you know, he's like, I could see. Like a surrogate dad. Exactly. Not, I don't think he could have put that label on it, but there's something going on there with them. And so he's seeing that, like, okay, I get this idea of her, but there's something else there. And I love how, like, you can see the growing of a relationship along the way where two people haven't realized, hey, we're connecting here and we don't realize it. And yet we on the screen go from there's kind of things not likable about both of them early on. That softens along the way. And you start to be really intrigued by both. And that's the sign of a great movie where both characters is almost in parallel. I think your interest in both goes as the film goes along. But you, the power struggle, and, and I think it's it's a great dynamic that, that Neil Simon came up with here. Mm-hmm. It, it is di- diametrically opposed to what's going on outside of the apartment because yes. inside in the side of the apartment they're battling for control and they're trying to to set ground rules and establish hey this is my domain and you're welcome to stay in it but you got to follow my rules they're both trying to do that meanwhile outside of the apartment she's had the rug pulled out from under her mm-hmm. you know her, her, her boyfriend at the time left her she's I guess 30 years old or so, and she's trying to get back into dancing, you know, and and you could see everybody who's she's competing against is like 21 years old. Uh, So, so she's like, you know, at 30 years old, she's all long in the tooth and and struggling and just not able to keep up with everybody. Meanwhile, he's got what he thinks is going to be his big break playing 
Richard the Third on on Broadway, and and the director is is just totally killing him by make by making the characters so different and so against type of what it's always been that he can't even perform the role correctly. Right. <clears throat> so so they're both like really failing outside of the house, and they just want this to be their one victory. And the only victory that they're each getting is Lucy, the daughter, is like the the, the bright light in both of their lives. So it's it's just a I think like he set up just a great dynamic with everything that's going on and it's really when you think about it from that perspective it's a pretty complex you know realistic life story even though again these people have jobs that most of us you know don't do the jobs like this but it feels very real. That's where the casting of Quinn Cummings was essential because boy we as viewers have got to also think this is a neat kid because that's that glue very early on is what kind of holds the film together because to the point of Marsha Mason, it's the interplay with her and Quinn Cummings that makes her likable. Mm-hmm. When you, when you get to see the two of them interacting, cause she is, she is on guard when it comes to him and really anybody else at very early on. So I can, I get kind of where is this going to be, but we're saying, eh, she's unlikable sort of, but you got to take a look at the relationship with the daughter, and that shows there's more to the story here than just that surface-level initial impression of her. And I, I like the fact that she's a multifaceted character. It This film felt very real, um, mm-hmm. and they felt like very real people. I connected with it because of the fact that I'm like, we've all been at stages of our life where, like, oh, boy, how are we continuing to go on? make that go and i loved that that was the part that i really liked about it it's 77 film i'm watching it in 2023 and i'm finding myself like engaged in in this story as if it was happening now with a few exceptions i mean there's certain pieces that of course it was in 77 are going to be dated and dated concepts and things but it's character strongly written character will still last the test of time and they're very strongly written See, I think they give you a little more of a, an inkling into her, too, by showing you the relationship between her and the other dancer that she kind of becomes, you know, has has a friendship with. So you see her behind the scenes in the dance company that she's trying to, to work with. And, and you can, you know, it gives you more of a vision or an, or an appreciation for the struggle that she's going through to try and make it outside of the house, you know, on top of the problems she has in the house. So... I think both of these characters really, really feel sympathetic because they're both totally put upon. And neither one of them is your point of view character because they both are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they both, in their own way, they both have relatable moments. I mean, you know, from from her point of view, you know, who hasn't felt like life is just basically, for lack of a better word, shitting on you on every turn. I, you know, I think that we've all had moments like that or, or times in our lives where it felt like that. And and from him, you know, who hasn't had a moment where you think, okay, I'm going to really do this in my job. And you have a boss, his, the director of his film, who who you feel like is holding you back and stopping you from from reaching the, the, the goals that you set for yourself. And, and you know you could just do it better if you're given that chance. And just, you know, in case anybody I work with now is listening, nobody in my current office is like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about when I was a kid. Well, to your point, actually, there's there's an interesting parallel there, because for him, this is like his big break. So he's had a lot of success on a smaller scale. 
So he's been very used to being able to, you know, have small victories along the way where it's, you know, he's been on, you know, the road up, but never quite broken through. This was his opportunity. He's like looking at, okay, I've moved here now. I'm, 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 this is big time. This is my opportunity to be immersed in all this. And my first big break, this is it. And he's trying to play the game and just really feel like I'm compromising myself. I mean, this this just does not feel right. But he's still like embracing it. He's practicing. He's like, all right, I'm. You tell me this is what that's going to be. We're going to be doing this edgy thing, and people are going to love it. Okay. In the meantime, inside he's being crushed because he knows this is just wrong. <laughs> I exactly. love that they gave so much screen time to that because you have to see what he went through, the journey that he went through. Um, how he was promised that, like, okay, you don't like this. You got to trust me. I'm giving you back the, the the hunchback. I'm giving you back the club foot. I'm getting you know, these things that you're looking for. I'm giving them all back to you. Everything's going to be fine. It wasn't. It was the same doggone character that he was being asked to play all along. Just he looked worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I love. It was horrible. <laughs> And and you you know you, you you could just feel such sympathy for him in that moment just yes. with 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 what he's going through, and and to me that's that's just such a huge part of this movie, uh you know to to you you go through that at work you know they're both going through it at work, and and when you come home that's got to be your sanctuary that's where you got to be saying okay now I can finally I can not think about what's going on at work I can come home I can watch TV or I can just take a nap or have a nice dinner, whatever it is, I can just do it in the comfort of my own space. And now neither one of them has a space and it's being invaded by somebody who's combating them to try and take more of the space away from them. So there's a natural antagonism. And then that brings us back to, but they both love the daughter. She's, she's the glue and it takes a ways through the movie before they start realizing, no, we don't just love the daughter, we love each other. I mean, it takes a while for that to happen. And that's where, and to me, that's where she becomes even more likable in her own way, because he has the confidence once they're together to say, hey, I found somebody who I really care about and I'm and I'm happy there. But she still has that insecurity of having been basically dumped on so many times that she, you know, she's doesn't have the ability to trust. So, you know, he, he ends up getting a, a part in a movie uh, by, uh, you know, directed by a prominent director and uh, part, uh, an uncredited part played by Nicole Williamson, who, who, you know, it's a very small little part in it, but I think he does a great job uh, in that. And I, I always know Nicole Williamson from uh, the movie Excalibur where he played Merlin. So that's, that's, that always stays with me. Uh, but, you know, he, he has to go to Seattle to film, his part uh and she just assumes well that's it i'm being dumped again until circumstances show him show her that he's going to be coming back and you can just feel joy. i mean the, i thought her, her acting in that when she comes to that realization that you know this is real and he does love me and he is coming back just the joy that she shows there i felt was palpable uh i i really just you know thought it was great the iceberg melted. And I mean, that's where the key is. You have to understand through the storytelling why she was the iceberg. 
And that's where when they say that she wasn't likable, I'm like, no, I don't get that because I understand why she's got her walls up and her garden. We saw enough scenes along the way of seeing her soft with her daughter, seeing her interact with her friend. You get to see that this person isn't that outer shell that we're seeing her interact with with males. Um, Even the scene where they got robbed, you know, with the groceries and things like that. There are some great opportunities Mm. to see her, you know, vulnerable and. You know, they had this wonderful moment where they're like, okay, we're going to break down this walls and start splitting the groceries down the middle. And they start having this moment where you're like, well, these two could maybe become friends or maybe something more. Um, You start to see the glimmer there. Then they get robbed. (laughs) (laughs) And, And to his credit, he's right when she's like saying, go after them. It's like, they're in a car. In the meantime, not only in the car, there's three of them, and one of them's got a knife. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and he does go knife. after them anyway. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. So you're, like, sitting here, I'm like, this guy's all right. I mean, like, I in that moment, I'm like, I don't know that I'm chasing. Listen, I consider myself pretty brave, but I'm not stupid. I'm not chasing after a car with three guys, one with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> And I lo- but I loved like the reasoning why this is a guy that internally has already loves the daughter, which means he's he's got feelings for her. That's already there and it's solid. He's he maybe hasn't come to the realization yet. When he's running down the street after them, he probably doesn't even know why we do as the viewer. And I love those kind of reveals where we, in many ways, knew more about the characters than they even knew about themselves. That was pretty cool writing in this, too. Agreed. Totally. So I, I think all the acting performances in this, and again, I hate to agree with, disagree with Siskel and Ebert because I've always enjoyed their uh, takes on movies. Uh, but I think all the acting in this is top notch. And I think the directing, while it never calls attention to itself, that's what makes it good. Because yeah. The story, the narrative, everything flows along really well. And you get scenes that are just long enough to make you feel like, okay, I know who these people are. And I know what their struggle is. And I know what their personalities are. And I like them. And that's what you need. And that's what the director gave us. I don't know. I'm not particularly familiar with Herbert Ross. I don't know if you know him at all. Uh, But I'm going to open up his page right now and see if he did anything else that we'd know of. Uh He's known for directing musicals and comedies, oh yeah, such as Goodbye Mr. Chips, The Owl and the Pussycat, Play It Against Sam, The Sunshine Boys, Funny Lady, The Goodbye Girl, California Suite, Pennies from Heaven, Footloose, Steel Magnolias, The Turning Point. So he's he's got quite a resume. I'm surprised I didn't know him. No, that's quite uh, that's quite a list. Yeah. So that's you know he clearly has has the. Uh, you know the the the, the background to, to put together a, a solid and and he clearly worked with Neil Simon on other occasions, so there's a lot going there. Uh, the score, I feel, is dependent upon the song. It's almost like the score is dependent on the soundtrack because David Gates's song "The Goodbye Girl" is very very catchy, and the score kind of plays that that tune throughout the. Uh, throughout the movie and for some reason in my head i keep hearing arthur's theme instead of the goodbye girl right now and i yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. why no, there's, there's but I, I was that. i'm with you 
I, w- I was uh, well. I, I guess they are very similar. I mean, David Gates. If people don't know, he was the uh, the lead singer and I guess the probably prime writer for the uh, soft rock group Bread uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and, and you know, he had, they had quite a bit of quite a few hits. Uh, but I was looking at the Academy Award nominations, and I'm a little disappointed that this was not nominated for uh, Best Original Song. Now, that, that year, You Light Up My Life, which was painfully ubiquitous uh, that year, uh, won Best Song. Uh, the other songs were Candle on the Water from Peach Dragon. I don't know that. Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me, which certainly was a top-notch song. The Slipper and the Rose Waltz from the story of Cinderella. I don't even know that. Somebody's Waiting for You from The Rescuers. Uh, so to me, outside of You Light Up My Life, because it was, again, I didn't like that song, but it was on all the time in the 1977 time frame. I understand why that was nominated. And Nobody Does It Better is an excellent James Bond song. So I'm good with that, too. The other ones, I don't even know. So how... how Goodbye Girl didn't get nominated because I still remember this one very well. Uh, except for the fact that I keep just replacing it with author's theme in my head. Uh, but except for that reason, uh, I don't see why this wasn't nominated. The movie did make a very good showing at the Academy Awards as far as nominations go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I'm sure when we get to uh, – Blaine and, and Trey's episode about the Academy Awards for 1977, they're going to have a lot to say because Annie Hall won Best Picture that year. But in the geek forums where Sean and I run, uh, everybody seems upset that Star Wars, which was nominated, did not win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking at the other movies, uh, you know, I can't argue with it. I mean, Star Wars has had more of a lasting, you know, uh, just footprint on movies for years and years and years. For that reason, it certainly should be considered. Now, Annie Hall is another rom-com, which maybe we'll cover one day. Uh, and it's a very, very different rom-com. I can see where, if you eliminate Star Wars from the, from the equation, I could see where people might fall on the side of either one of these two against each other. The other two movies that were nominated were Julia and The Turning Point, uh, neither of which I've ever watched. You have any thoughts about Best Picture that year? I I don't other than rooting for Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was a thing. I actually was thrilled that to see that this was nominated, um, and to see that Dreyfus won as uh, Best Actor because this film deserved all the noms that it got. I mean, just to be in the conversation, it deserved to be in the conversation. Um, Interestingly, Best Director was Woody Allen for Annie Hall, but one of the nominees was Herbert Ross, who directed this, but not for this, but for The Turning Point. Yeah, which is, it's crazy he didn't get nominated for this. So Richard Dreyfuss won Best Actor that year. Now, his competition was Woody Allen for Annie Hall, Richard Burton for Equus, Marcello Mastriani for A Special Day, and John Travolta for Saturday Night Fever. Honestly, I think his was the best performance of the bunch, of the ones I've seen. I, I have not seen Marcello Mastriani. Uh, and I know I've seen bits and pieces of Richard Burton and Equus, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about that performance. But I've seen Woody Allen. I've seen John Travolta. I'm, I'm definitely on board with Richard Dreyfus winning. 
so likable. I mean, it's um, I, I wanted to hang with him. And I, I think that's probably the most sincere compliment I can give this whole cast. It's these are people I wanted to hang out with. I wanted more. Um, and I think that's part of the problem with trying to launch this into a TV series if you can't get this cast. Because I wanted to see them. Um, if, if when I when the movie ended, I wanted more of them. And I think recasting them. Yes, I would still be intrigued by it. And don't, um, so don't get me wrong on that. But my ideal, my perfect situation would be would wouldn't happen. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to get Richard Dreyfuss in the TV series doing this. But um, it's certainly this this family I wanted to follow going forward. Well, I know Karen Valentine from Room 222, uh, a sitcom that was on before this. So she was always a very likable mm-hmm. uh, character, you know, an actress. Uh, so I don't think I'd have any problem with her. Michael Lembeck, who was in the first one, uh, I also thought he was a very likable person, you know, the way he presented in his TV appearances. So I, I could see where I could see where that show had potential. Sure. So I, I kind of wish it had caught on and to see where it would go, but you know, it's not not going to happen at this point. <laughs> so that that's that. Uh, Marsha Mason was nominated for Best Actress, lost to Diane Keaton from Andy Hall. And Quinn Cummings was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I believe she was the, at, at least at the time, the youngest nominee. Uh, was uh, what's it? Tatum O'Neill was the youngest winner ever, but I think Quinn Cummings was younger than her as far as nominee. Who did she lose to? Uh, Vanessa Redgrave from Julia. Okay. And if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, and if somebody knows. You know, put a note in the Facebook uh, post for this move for this show because I'm I'm curious. I seem to remember Vanessa Redgrave getting up and giving a political speech and having to be kind of like ushered off the stage. You know, politely ushered, but ushered just the same. Talking about like Zionist movements and such. So again, if somebody remembers that better than me, or what feels like actually doing the research on that, uh, by all means, I'd be interested in knowing. So, again, the movie was pretty well thought of. Um, I really enjoyed in this film some of the supporting cast. And it's a piece that I do. I do want to mention that piece because I know I I kept saying earlier that, you know, the linchpin was me was this family. But I think one of the pieces they did, you mentioned uh, her friend, which I think I think that was Rhonda. If I'm remembering correctly, it was Barbara Rhodes, and the friend's name was Donna Douglas. Donna. Okay. And and Barbara Rhodes, I know Barbara Rhodes most of all things from one episode of The Odd Couple that she was on in in a small little role. Uh, I think I I seem to remember her being on Taxi as well for an episode, uh, but I could be wrong about that. But definitely, I remember The Odd Couple episode is kind of a flashback when Felix and Oscar were. Uh, when their their parents met during the, uh, the, the during you know prohibition, uh, and she was like a dancer at the uh, speakeasy that Oscar's father ran, uh, but that's 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 my best memory of her. But she's she's also like there's she's more what I talked about when I said if you know you have very very attractive people who look like they could be models in the lead roles. She's she like she would fit that bill more because I could see her as like a model. One of the um, 
things that I really enjoyed was when we got to see Marsha's, you know, uh, basically she's, she's trying to get back into dancing. And it's something that she'd left behind because she looked at that as being like now she was moving on. She was moving in and supporting her actor boyfriend who she saw the future with. So, you know, she had she had moved on from that world and and was, you know, in the rear view, but clearly had some chops because she was going back to train. And when she went through the audition, I love that she was recognized. And, you know, the talent agent or the director, whatever it was, was like looking at her and basically going, hey, I remember you. I thought you'd walked away from all this. And, uh, you know, he was he was basically I loved that. He gave her the audition, and afterwards, when he came back, he just said, "You're a little rusty, but boy, you know, you were." I mean, like gave her the thumbs up and said that I'm looking for somebody younger. But it was almost like he was trying. He would like recognize the fact that this is, you know, somebody who I owe some respect to. I actually really liked the way that sequence was written because we, as the viewers, got to realize she had a career. She mm-hmm. actually had some chops at that point, and. You know, there's she's trying to jump back into something that she just no longer ha- she doesn't have the um, she hasn't been training. Her body's not where it used to be, you know, and, and she, she's got to work hard to get there. But there was something to try and rebuild, too, that she had once been. And I love that he acknowledged that it was a small little touch, but it was something that I thought was a great sequence because it added another layer to her of I gave this up for this guy. And it's yet another thing where, like, I had moved on because I thought my life was solid, and it was not. And it was it was kind of a cool little atmosphere, short sequence that it said a lot in a short little sequence. Agreed. I think that w- that was key. And the uh, the other supporting role that's definitely worth mentioning is uh, Paul Benedict as the director of the play, uh, mm-hmm. who's I would assume best known as uh, the part of Bentley on the Jeffersons, the upstairs neighbor. Uh, but uh, you know, that aside, the other role. My mom liked it. Role that I. That's <laughs> 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 right. I was like, I thought it was a critic, and then he's like, sitting, sitting, like he's talking to her. That was such a well-written bit because he was playing this up like it was the greatest thing in the world. And he turns and said, "My mom loved it," and that wasn't what she said, but he was sure taking it to that place. <laughs> yes, definitely. The 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 role I, I uh, the other role I remember him for, which is similar to this in its own way. If you ever saw The Freshman with Matthew Bro- Matthew Broderick, he plays Matthew Broderick's film prof- professor, and he's got this arrogance about him that's similar in its own way. Whereas I guess this part is a little bit more nuanced because just because of what you just said, he comes off as arrogant, like I know everything or whatever, but. And you could see his own insecurities that he needs his mom's approval of the play. So, you know, again, a small part, uh, very cleverly written. Uh, you know, this is this this is a show uh, or a movie where you could see what a good writer Neil Simon was. And and I think a lot of his things that I've seen, and I, I might have to review a lot of them to to know if my impression is accurate but a lot of the things i've seen of his i've kind of walked away with the impression that he sets up a really good situation but the dialogue isn't always as crisp as it is here 
and and I do think that that's one of this is I believe this is one of his best written works. Maybe maybe it might be his best written. Now you know the Odd Couple is always going to be a personal favorite of mine, uh, but. Even from that perspective, I've always been more of a fan of the TV show that he didn't write than the play that he did. So I can't really, you know, I can't put the total credit for him on that. Again, he set up the connection between the two. He set up the situation. But I think where, uh, I guess, uh, what's his name, Gary uh, Marshall, who produced the Odd Couple TV show, where he took them as the showrunner, to me, was better than what Neil Simon had done in the movie. The cool thing about this with the dialogue and the point to your point about the writing, it's it's not one liners. It's the interplay between both characters. And and that's really, really critical. It's it's the interchange. It's the give and the take. Um, That was something that I really, really enjoyed in this. Um, And it's not just the adults. It's the it's the why. Why do we like Quinn so much? It's it was her interactions with the rest. And it's you see a lot of movies where you got young kids where it's like the cute one liner from the kid and they're de- they're delivering it at people not to people not with interaction and reaction everything that was done here is action and reaction um, and and usually multiple like multi phase multi layered so you know one line leads to a come a not not even a comeback it, it was conversation so. This was not humor for the sake of let's get that one liner and get the laugh. It was humorous dialogue interacting with people. There was never anything that was like uh, stand up um, and slapstick. And um, that was the that was a piece that I really liked about it. It felt like natural dialogue. And it does feel natural really well. And that's that's one of the things where I've seen movies with snappy dialogue that I get a big kick out of. Mm-hmm. You know, Quentin Tarantino is famous for his dialogue in his movies, uh, and then there's a lot of you know Ryan Reynolds in his parts where he's you know he's just you know coming out with all these lines so quick. Uh, and I've met people who are really quick with their comebacks and their quips and everything, but not everybody is like that. So when they start writing a script where they're all like that, I, I, it's been one of the criticisms I've occasionally had of the Marvel movies is they, they developed that with Tony Stark, but then they weren't content to leave it with Tony Stark. You had to have Doctor Strange with the quick comebacks, and, and you had to have you know a bunch of different characters who have that same snappy dialogue. In this movie, Richard Dreyfuss's character kind of has that. He's kind of got the quick comebacks. He's got, you know, he, he knows what he's saying. He's got a confidence in what he's saying as he's saying it. But when he's sparring with her, she holds her own, but she isn't as quick. She has to kind of like think about what she's saying and, and kind of come up. And you could feel that as it's coming along, like she's thinking of it as she's saying it, as opposed to it was written already and she's just snapping it out, you know, as quickly as it comes to her. So and, I, to me, that felt real. And, and even Lucy, there's a one sequence with Lucy and him at the table very early on where they're, they're having their first dinnertime interaction, you know, where it was really like Lucy was kind of like planting some seeds between the two of them. And Lucy's almost interviewing him for the sake of trying to sell him to mom. And I love that the conversation that's going on, she kept trying really, really hard to, like, throw him at mom as she was finding out good things about him. But he was really kind of talking about his career, every little thing that he did. And I love that she, Lucy, was acknowledging the fact that you really like yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And it was it was a cool sort of interplay there. 
that I thought was great because he was very much this witty, confident, one-liner guy, but Lucy was holding her own with him. And that was that was the great part about the dialogue was was those particular pieces because it felt like you could see why he was drawn to her in in kind of a father figure, um, you know, big brother kind of whatever whatever you looked at the in, the relationship gradually developing from two, um, it was it was really cool to see how that all played out. Agreed, agreed, and and. Some just, again, him as the guy who does have the quick wit and mm-hmm. come up with things really fast is, you know, a very big part of the enjoyment of this movie. You know, his whole, and I don't like the panties on the shower, <laughs> you know, that thing. <laughs> or, you know, just, just little stuff like that that he comes up with is just, you know, it, it really played well. And just one of my favorite things is when he takes her on the, uh, he takes Lucy on the carriage, the horse-drawn carriage ride, and they see her friend, and he's like, "Oh, I think you're cute too," and she gets all embarrassed because of it. It's it, there's just so many real moments in this that I just think are great. So I, 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 I'm I'm loading it with superlatives, and I'll be honest with you, I'm learning loading it with more superlatives than I thought I was going to when I was planning to discuss this. The more I talk about it, the more I just think this is such a well put together movie. Mm-hmm. Well acted, well directed, well written, and just enjoyable. Not too long, not too short. The music is nice. Everything about it is is a is a positive in my mind. Agreed. So, as much as I want to say, well, it's the good boy girl. It's a rom com. I'm going to give it a Jaws too. I think I got to give it a Jaws. I'm shocking myself as much as I possibly can, but I think I got to give it a Jaws. Oh, I was prepared to walk in all Jaws too on this one, and it was it was one of those where, as as I was even watching it, I was like sitting here saying, "This is a good Jaws too." I'm like, "I really, really like this one." What what really hit me is the pace, um, and and you said it best. I don't think there was a wasted scene. Um, for me, movies like this start to become comfort food. This is something where you know, I've had a long day at work. I'm looking to watch something where I can just kind of relax and just enjoy myself. I already want to watch this again with my wife. Um, she hasn't seen it yet. And I think it's a movie she's really going to like. And I know this is going to be something when I, I, I go to films like this, when it's like, I don't want something heavy, um, but it, I want something that I just feel like I'm hanging out. And this is, this is a hangout movie. <laughs> um, I, I like to throw on movies like this when I'm doing something else because of the fact that there's certain scenes that are just going to make me smile. You start to memorize like the film because of it, and so I'm with you. I think this one's good. This one's a Jaws for me too. Um, I would recommend this to anybody. The only piece I would say is a caveat, and it's a small caveat on it. It's a '77 movie that it's set in '77. And it was written for 77, and there's some 77 sensibilities that might be the only thing that's a turnoff, partial turnoff for some people. Um, but um, that's for me. It's I I, don't know, I grew up then, and, uh, and this is just this is just a this is just a great movie. Um, it was uh, great characters, and I can't believe I've never seen this because uh, it, it, it's right up my alley and. Uh, I was I was surprised at how much this one was one that uh, I feel like I've been missing out on. Yeah, that's now, as I said, when we first started recording, uh, I like the idea that we're not 
pigeonholing like one type of movie that we're doing you know we're, we're all over the map we're doing old movies we're doing brand new movies that we've just seen we're doing science fiction we're doing you know classics uh, we've done some foreign language movies uh we're trying to do everything i welcome first of all i invite everybody who listens to the show to join the facebook group because uh, you know th- there's a decent number of members in there but not nearly as many as download this uh podcast so i'd love to hear to see more of you in there. Uh, and what I'd love to see is your suggestions. Hey, Paul and Sean, I think you'd like this movie. Why don't you check it out? Hey, Paul and Sean, I think you'd hate this movie. Why don't you check it out? <laughs> you know, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, here, here's an, an you know, we, we're, we're open to just about anything. And we have plenty of movies that are in the queue that we're planning to do. But, you know, if somebody has something that's a little bit off the beaten path that we might not have thought of on our own, by all means, suggest it. I'm not promising you we're going to cover it, but I'm not not closing the door on that either. Uh, we're definitely interested in hearing what you have to say. And when when we when you listen to an episode, I'd love to see your comments in the uh, in the Facebook post where I put the episode. Uh, you know, see see what you think. If you like what we're doing, if you don't like what we're doing, if you uh, think of something that we just you know neglected to mention. Anything like that, please. You know, I, I would love for this to be more interactive. Uh, also, just because it makes me feel good uh, and because it also helps other people to find the show. If you get this from whatever podcatcher that you get it from, if you want to go on and give us a, you know, a solid review, I prefer solid. I'm willing to listen to constructive criticism as long as that's what it is uh, and and work with that and you know i've always tried to improve so if there's something you think we could do better let us know that uh but if you enjoy the show and you you know you think other people in, will enjoy it give us reviews on on a- the apple podcast uh catcher and and whatever other podcatcher you use because uh the more people that listen to it you know and we're not making any money on it but we really get satisfaction of knowing that that you know we might be giving people enjoyment beyond the enjoyment we get of recording which we lo- do very much so all sure, that said sharing us on the socials helps a lot too um it really is if you like the episode share it out um it really does it may seem to you like you're only going to grab us like one or two more people that's one or two more people that are you know hopefully finding a podcast that hopefully they'll enjoy um we really appreciate that so thank you for you know taking the time to do that because it really does help yeah and uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We really do appreciate the loyalty of our listeners. We have, a, like I said, we have a, a decent-sized audience, and it seems to be pretty loyal. And uh, you know that makes me feel good. Thank you, and thanks, Sean, for making the time to talk to me again, my friend. And uh, this one was fun. Thank you for suggesting it because uh, I, I walked into this one completely blind. I'm glad we did it. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks with some other movie. I don't know what, but <laughs> it'll be something. Bye-bye.
Now you're home. Alone. 